zoom, 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 say, wow, come, hey. Ladies and gentlemen, we're ready to set the You're session. listening to Respect You. Open it up. Say, good evening and good afternoon. Like say, welcome in. Welcome in. In 2021, we invited UK creatives, journalists and heritage organisations to nominate an individual who's had a big impact on their creative journeys for inclusion in the Museum of Colour, a digital museum celebrating 250 years of creative achievement by people of colour. The individuals selected are from different creative sectors, but they are united in their determination to affect change, their great originality and the legacy they leave for future generations. Alongside podcast interviews with the nominees, their achievements have been celebrated in the Museum of Colour with specially commissioned portraits by the artists Grace Lee, Erin Say and Naki Nah. But in this episode, we look back at some of the truly special interviews we recorded this year for the Respect You podcast and share some unheard clips that I am sure will pique your interest. Our first clip is from Lucy Sheen. Lucy is an actor and writer in film, television and theatre. She is also an activist campaigning for better representation for British East and Southeast Asian people in creative industries and advocating for the rights of transracial adoptees. I just want to ask you something specific because you talked about your activism at the beginning in terms of how you described yourself. And I know that you've spoken out about stereotypes and lack of representation. Mm. Have you ever feared that speaking out about those things was going to affect your career and if we encourage others to do that to do you you know do you feel that people need to because the more voices the better or you're happy to be a lone voice can you just tell me a little bit about that in terms of co-opting other people one can try to encourage people to do that but at the end of the day being an activist uh, being basically a pain in the ass, which is what it is, isn't it? Um, and speaking out is only something that you can make a decision to do personally. And I totally understand, particularly if you are young and just starting out, the fear that you will be blacklisted, which is a very real fear, irrespective of what your heritage is or what the colour of your skin is. That's a very real thing even nowadays. I mean, I think the difficulty now, particularly with creatives of heritage of different ethnic backgrounds, is that that plays into the long time sort of structural and institutional racism, prejudice, uh, stereotypical tropes, all of that kind of, let's be generous, lazy shorthand way of trying to encapsulate and commodify in a way an entire race or group of people and I think we're just beginning to in a general sense wake up from that. Do you think that that is due to an evolution of understanding or do you think that that is particularly market driven I don't know the answer but I'm just wondering what you think because belonging to a diaspora means that there is a big old market beyond Europe it's an interesting question until I read the article recently that uh, Marcus Ryder wrote about 
why do we equate diversity with financial success? And I'd always thought, oh, this is great. You know, this is an argument that one can use. You know, if you have greater diversity and inclusion, then you put bums on seats, you increase your profits. And having read what he had to write about this, I thought, actually, that's such an easy out for people not to have to actually really take on board the significance and the importance of inclusion, of acceptance, of reversing the erasure and the appropriation of other British cultures. And I think it's it's the equivalent of the tick box for the form when you're looking for funding. Are you black? Are you lesbian? You know, tick those boxes and you might stand a greater chance of actually getting some of the funding because that's what we have to do. And it doesn't address the lack of understanding or the lack of willingness to actually in this day and age that we are in with the gift of hindsight, with the gift of knowledge, with the gift of understanding that we now have. It's just another way of ticking a box. And it doesn't actually affect substantive structural or institutional change because the people at the top who make the decisions are still from, by and large, not always, a very privileged class of people. So we are still having to deal with being told who and what we can be, even in fictional terms. I mean, it is, thankfully, I think, in some areas, starting to change. But there is the reverse of that because of, I think, Brexit and uh, the way that the political climate has, has, has changed and was changing. And nobody basically paid much attention in the yeah. UK or across Europe that a lot of the significant gains that have been hard fought for particularly in my industry, for performers of colour are being eroded quite rapidly. You know, sort of people are having to push back very hard. And I think it's not rocket science. You need to fund people. You need to start hiring them. You need to start putting them into positions in front and behind camera that are significant. You need, in a risk-averse industry, I agree, to actually put your money where your mouth is. Now we have the brilliant Ranjit Sondi. Ranjit is a tireless cultural leader and a passionate champion for the arts. His determined enthusiasm has taken him from a commune in Handsworth to the hallowed halls of some of the UK's most powerful institutions. At every stage of that journey, he has continued to fight for the economically and politically disenfranchised. In 1976, Ranjit founded the Asian Resource Centre in Birmingham to support the Asian community in the area with practical advice and support with legal and social issues. There are now Asian Resource Centres across the UK, but at that time, it was one of a kind. A question I want to ask you about now, because there are lots of centres that still exist. Do you think the needs have changed that much from when you set up your centre? I think there has been a shift. The uh, mission of the centres that exist now is the same. When, for instance, they are fighting discrimination and prejudice, at another level, there are new issues that arise amongst younger people, and that is 
the question of identity and locating themselves in an increasingly complex, diverse environment. So, I mean, to begin with, of course, the Asian Resource Center dealt with all the problems that were faced by migrant communities coming in to settle in in the mother country, you know, pulled in by the labor-hungry regions of the industrial hearts of Britain, like Birmingham, like Bradford, like Bristol and London. And of course, uh, meeting with extreme discriminatory practices in housing, in education, in employment, in the neighborhood, uh, in the cultural sector and so on. So in that sense, th- that problem is still existing. The, the, the new issues are now about locating oneself in a, an increasingly complex society. So this is a questions of identity. Yeah. As well as uh, questions of community, we now also look at the notion of self-determination, the extent to which people uh, are able to identify themselves and to be who they are, and the notion of multiple identities, the emergence of the, uh, of the notion of British Asian or British Black. Uh, these issues bring about a whole new ways of thinking as well, and there are problems that are associated with that. Classification, for instance, interethnic marriages, uh, they are not problems in, in that sense, but they become problems in the eyes of a wider community. So, yes, yeah. so now the, even, the, even the Asian Resource Centre in its, in its later days was increasingly being challenged by young people, young Asians, about the relevance of the work that the Asian Resource Centre did. And it needed to shift with the times. Ranjit's achievements are numerous. He was deputy chairman of the first Commission for Racial Equality. He was a BBC governor from 1998 to 2006 and was awarded a CBE in 1999. We asked him what his career highlight was. You might be surprised by his answer. I was never happier, honestly, uh, when I was living below the poverty line, doing all those different things in the community. Yeah. And the community would come in with food, with drink throughout the day and night. And they'd say, if you're going to work for us, we're going to look after you. I never felt poor. I, mean, I felt incredible love coming out of those communities. And this yeah. still continues to, to till today. I mean, you can't walk down the street without somebody who, you know, 50 years ago, coming up and saying, you sorted my case out. <laughs> it's, Whoa. Oh, it's, I love that. <laughs> I mean, it's quite extraordinary. I mean, the other day there was a guy in the in the park. I couldn't even remember who he was, actually. He said, you changed my life because you brought my wife and children into the country by fighting their immigration appeal. I mean, I've done so many of those. But one thing that I learned very early on in life was something that Stuart Hall said to me. He was a professor at the Center of Intercultural Studies, one of the greatest cultural theorists I've ever uh, had the chance to, uh, privilege to meet. In fact, I worked for him. And he gave the, the lecture to the undergraduate graduates in the University of Birmingham when we first came and he said you can do what the hell you like in this in this university but don't forget that when you leave the university you should feel as if you've changed something and this point about change stuck in my head forever that whatever I do I need to make sure that it produces a favorable change it, it moves people on in a way that hopefully means that their lives are, are are better. I mean, there's no other point in living if you're not going to change anything. Next, we want to share a short clip from our interview with the actress Judith Jacob. 
You might recognise Judith's voice from programmes such as The Real McCoy, EastEnders and No Problem. She was also part of the Black Theatre Co-op and is a founding member of the comedy troupe The BB Crew. But Judith's illustrious career began in 1979 when she was just 17 on the set of Angels. So Angels was a nurses series. It was like the first soap as such. It was on for nine months out of the year. And there was all these young women who were being, the angels are the terminology they use for nurses, isn't it? And so they were all out there having all this drama in their personal lives and having to deal with, the, 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 the hospital was almost like a backdrop to what was going on in the, the dramatic lives of all of these angels. I came in on angels and Angela Bruce was there when I came in. And I must say, I was 17, Angela Bruce, Joe Monroe and Shelley King, who's now doing Coronation Street, actually, they took me under their wing and they just educated me. They told me, look, if you're not happy with a, a way something is filmed and they're happy, they will run with it. So quickly swear as soon as you can up so they can't edit it out so you can get it done again. What beautiful advice. You know, of course, I was very frightened to swear straight away to begin with. And then Angie would go, were you happy with that scene? No. Why didn't you do what I told you? I went, okay, yes, I'll do the next one. I'll do the next one. <laughs> so I was blessed. I came in, my first job to leave school, and I had these women that took me under their wing and just looked after me. And Shirley Sharon Many of the nominees interviewed for the Respect You series have had to balance their creative pursuits and careers with their activism. Stella Dadzi is a co-founder of the Organisation of Women of African and Asian Descent, which was a central plank of the UK civil rights movement. She has written many non-fiction books, but is currently working on her first novel. Here she is talking about the difficulties of making space for creativity. It's a long and painful process. I think that's the first thing to say. I see myself as a writer, but most of my... um, I've written about 25, 30 books through my lifetime. The two that we've talked about are the ones that are known, but if you're involved in education, you'll know of other work. So, you know, I do write naturally and copiously, and most of my stuff has been non-fiction. So to write what is actually a factional account of someone's life, get it? Um, yep. what I've had to do is imagine myself into her head and into her shoes, which I think is a different challenge. Now, part of my problem is the age-old problem that I think many black women face, which is that up until very recently, and still with very few exceptions, we don't often have the time or the luxury or the space to just say, leave me alone, I want to write. You know, we have children, we have careers, we have partners, we have community issues, all those things that get in the way. And I'm afraid because I've been an activist all my life, that was also one of the one of the things that, that forced me to put it on hold. I was always looking for this magical few weeks when I'd be able to roll up my sleeves, forget everybody else existed, live on cheese and apple and, you know, not, things I didn't have to cook and just get on with my writing. And when I did that, great but then I'd have to switch to something else and by the time I came back to it I sometimes found it quite difficult to pick up my voice not not by way of an excuse I think it's a process that many many writers face and we need to be up front and say you know um, sometimes that beautiful prose you see doesn't just trip off the tongue 
I'm sitting here smiling because I so relate to the story that you were, what you were talking about. You're an activist and I decide, oh, I want to build a museum. So, you know, these things, they pop yeah, up yeah, and, they yeah. Com- yeah, yeah. and they compel us to do them and they are rewarding and, and, and interesting and, but they're absorbing and the writer has to take a back seat but the idea of the the writer the artist there's so many facets of my being that I'm only now because I'm you know semi-retired able to really confront and engage with what's interesting to me as a writer is that I don't know about you whether you found this but when I was writing you know the stuff that bubbles up from your subconscious is quite alarming at times you know so I find myself talking about hair I find myself reliving experiences that I must have engaged with as a child and some of which I remember. But um, that's also an interesting process as well, as is the process of developing characters, some of whom, I have to say, jumped off the page at me, ready, clothed and, you know, with their own accent and their own voice and their own story. Now... The process of taking that that person that you can envisage in your head and hear speaking to you and putting her down on paper, that is the challenge, isn't it? In a way that is acceptable and doesn't rely on too many adverbs and adjectives and is properly punctuated, all of that, you know. Now, I've done my creative writing courses. I probably should do a few more because they were so long ago that I've probably, you know, would have to revisit a lot of it. But I think it enters you by osmosis. You know, and, yeah, uh, and that's part of the fun, isn't it? Yeah. it I mean, the torture or the fun, whichever you see it. <laughs> Many of the nominees also spoke about the great changes they have seen in their industry over time and offered advice for new creatives hoping to make their mark. In this clip, we hear from DJ Ritu, broadcaster, event producer, co founder of Outcast Records, and world renowned disc jockey. We asked her what advice she would give to an aspiring DJ. I don't know if the advice I would give now would be the same as the advice I gave many years ago, because I think the world has changed, technology has changed, and now it's possible for someone to get into doing this by just having a laptop. What I would have said in the old days, prior to laptop DJing generation, is only do it if you really, really want to do it, like be sure this is what you want to do. You can do it as a hobby and just do it for enjoyment. And then the world is your oyster. There are no limitations. But if you want to do this professionally, old school style, then it takes investment because let's look at, for example, all of the women DJs that fell by the wayside in years gone by. If you don't get work, then how do you pay for your records? How do you pay for your headphones that have to be renewed every now and then and your record boxes and your this and your that it's it's like there is expenditure involved and I know I know so many women DJs that had to give up for that reason because much as they had a passion and they loved what they were doing it, it just became financially impossible to do it and, that, and that's partly why I had to set up my own clubs as well because I, I don't think I'd still be around as a woman DJ if we talk to you know um, other women DJs, I mean, like, you know, DJ Paulette, for example, who was huge on the house scene in the 90s and the t- 2000s and so on. And and she's talked about having to write herself back into history. 
I mean, there were, there were quite quite a few black women DJs around, you know, Smoking Joe and Chemistry from Chemistry and Storm and Marsha, DJ Marsha Carr. I mean, um, you know, there's a, there's a whole list out there. So it's not as easy for those of us that are that are female, particularly, to get as much work as, work as we are entitled to. And there's and there's also a question mark about you know I mean like Kwame um, Funk Butcher, he recently managed to um, do a blackout issue of Mixmag, and with with that he was writing back into history so many black DJs that had been written out of house music, even though, hello, <laughs> where did it come from in the first place? So a lot of these kind of conversations have come up recently through uh, what Kwame's been doing and. I think just to kind of uh, the heritage matters that have come up a lot more through the pandemic times where we're looking back and we're going, okay, what's the history? Our final clip is from the fabulous Hilary Carty. Hilary is the director of the Claw Leadership Programme, an organisation that aims to develop and strengthen leadership potential across the cultural and creative sectors. In her interview, Hilary explained how everyone can harness their leadership skills to affect change at any stage of their career. So I'm, I've asked you a lot of questions and this is a particular one because I think it also it touches on something that you've already talked about, which is people who really genuinely desire to change. But there's mm. one thing changing when you're a leader and it's in your gift almost. But there is another thing when you are inside an organisation, but you're not necessarily in the leadership position, mm. but you're trying to drive some change within your cultural institution. Do you have a little bit of advice for people who find themselves in that position? What, what can they do? It's a position that most of us find ourselves in. At some point, you know, even when you're the CEO, you still have a board that makes the decisions and the board will have stakeholders and funders. And so we're, we're all somewhere along the line trying to influence in one way, shape or form. Very few of us have all of the cards and are dealing them out all the time, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I think even holding that perspective kind of helps me to understand that this thing shifts and if you if you can see it that way, then wherever you are and whoever you need to kind of influence to make a decision, you can feel a little bit more empowered because actually that's what we're all trying to do. And for me, the, one of the important lessons that I learned was that even if I don't have power, that the ability to make the decision, I can often influence and I always encourage those that I work with to look at where is your position of influence. If you can't make the decision, that's not the end game. You might be able to influence the decision. So the key issue is where and how might you influence? Who do you need to talk to? How might you get that conversation going? And, and look at it as incremental shifts towards a big change as opposed to I must get this change done in one jump and it must happen tomorrow. So I guess you need a mixture of astute intelligence about people, 
but also patience to deal with what always ends up being a complex mix of steps in order to get a result. Could it be we've come right to the end? So soon, the end, the end, the end. Full interviews with all the nominees included in this episode are available across all podcast platforms. Respect You is presented by me, Samanwar Sesha, and is produced by Stella Sabin for the Museum of Colour. You can find out more at museumofcolour.org.uk. The music you have heard in this series is from Soweto Kinch's prize-winning album, Conversations with the Unseen. Every level of weakness, harmonic or lyrically, shutting it down, we shutting it down. Respect You is supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund and the Paul Hamlin Foundation. And Museum of Colour is supported by Queen Mary University London and People's Palace Projects. Thank you for listening.